Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Y'all doing well? Hello? Are you awake? Are y'all there? All right. A few of y'all. Welcome. We are glad that you're with us, worshiping with us here in the building, or whether you're worshiping with us online. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I'm uh, lead pastor here and also one of our elders, and we are thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us on this important weekend. It's uh, Memorial Day weekend, which we all love that because it's kind of the beginning of summer and we have a long weekend, but reality is this, Memorial Day is more important than that. It's a reminder to us of the men and women who have served in uh, our military to help protect our freedoms, and we are uh, grateful for the sacrifice that those men and women have served uh, within our country, and we are definitely grateful for this chance to come and worship. Uh, some countries do not have the luxury of being able to worship in public on Sunday mornings, uh, but we in our country have so many freedoms and we're grateful. So just wanted to celebrate uh, the purpose of this weekend and glad that you chose to worship with us on this weekend. I do have a, a uh, if I can speak clearly, I do have a few things I want to remind you about, and that is inside the worship guide there's all kinds of announcements, hopefully you pick that up. On the back side, there's a place to take notes with the sermon in just a moment. And on the inside, you may have seen this little sheet. This sheet is the same on the front and the back. They're just organized differently. And it's all of the summer activities that are going on within the life of our church. So I'd encourage you to hang this up at your house, whichever side is more readable for you, so you can follow along with what's happening uh, this summer. And then one other thing I wanted to draw to your attention so that I don't just mention it at the end, and that is we are having what's called a benevolence offering this morning. And uh, what we do with these funds is anybody within our congregation or within our community, um, after we kind of screen and see what's going on, if we're able to help out financially with uh, any needs uh, within those families, then we use our benevolence offering to, to do that. So this uh, morning, whenever we dismiss, um, if you're here in the building, there is an offering plate by our offering boxes. And so the offering boxes are for your normal offerings, for your connection cards and things like that. The, uh, the plates that say benevolence offering is specifically for those that want to contribute to the benevolence offering. If you're at home or you want to give online, that's an option for you as well. So anyway, all of that, kind of a lot going on in the life of our church. Hopefully you'll read through the announcements, uh, not right now, but maybe later, and see what all uh, is in store uh, as a part of our church family. We are in the middle of a series. We, we are actually going through the whole year where we're walking through as a church family through the New Testament. Uh, in fact, we're calling it Foundations New Testament, and we're reading uh, a chapter a day, five days a week, and hopefully you've been able to read along with us. If you haven't been reading along with us and you'd like to join in, it's never too late. So all you have to do is do one of two things. You can look at the bottom of your sermon notes, and you'll see that this week we're reading Mark 15 and 16, and then we're jumping over to the book of Romans. We'll be reading Romans 1 through 3. Also on the rack right out in the hallway, there is a reading guide that has the entire year, and you can pick that up as well. Um, and I would encourage you to read along with us. As I just listed the verses, we are jumping into Romans next week. So starting next week, we're going to start a series, a three or four week series on the book of Romans. But today, we're finishing up our series on the book of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark was written by one of the followers of Jesus by the name of Mark. And, and in his account, we find out that Jesus is our servant king. And that's what we've been looking at as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark together. Before I jump into the text for today, I want to remind us of a, of a vision statement we use here at our church, that we want to be a place where we understand that we need to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. In order for us to live that out, we really need to understand what does it mean 
to be a disciple. To, uh, to be a disciple, does that just mean I'm, I'm a Christian? To be a disciple, does that just mean I love Jesus? Uh, to be a disciple, does that mean I just go to church? No, actually, to be a disciple is all-inclusive of the life of one who follows Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, in chapters 8 through 10, it is like a crash course on what discipleship is, what it means to be a disciple. You see, Jesus knows he's got to plant these thoughts in the minds of his followers because in the very next chapter, chapter 11, we start the march, or actually we've already started the march, we, we end up in Jerusalem. Chapters 11 through 16 of Mark is about the last week of Jesus' life. And he's there in Jerusalem, and he'll be arrested, and he'll be crucified, and he'll raised from the dead again. But, but the truth of the matter is in verse chapters 8 through 10, Jesus knows where he's going, and so he's communicating to his disciples where they're going, why they're going to Jerusalem, and then he's teaching them about what it means to follow him. You see, in each of these three chapters, chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, there is a repeating pattern at the end of the chapter. If you just kind of glance, if you've got a Bible with you, if you glance at chapter 8 around verse 31, if you glance at chapter 9 around verse 31, and then if you glance at chapter 10 around verse 31, it has the same pattern of a story. Three different times where the same thing happens over and over again because Jesus is preparing his disciples to understand what the purpose of the cross is, the necessity of the cross in our life, and how that impacts our lives as a follower of his. So around verse 31 in all three of those chapters, Jesus begins to describe to his disciples that they're going to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, he'll be crucified, and he'll raised from the dead. Now, in all three of those accounts, he doesn't tell it exactly in the same depth, but he explains what's happening in Jerusalem. And then right after he makes those statements, in all three chapters, one or two of the disciples comes up and says something rather knuckleheaded, really idiotic, and say, Jesus, you don't really understand what this is about, so let me tell you what really matters. It's kind of like that. And then... Uh, as a result of the disciples speaking out of turn, Jesus then takes an opportunity for a teachable moment to explain what it looks like to be a disciple. So I, I just wanted you to see, because if you were here last week, we walked through chapter 9, and this week we're walking through chapter 10, and you may say, Alan, I thought you preached this last week. Well, in a way I did, in a way I didn't, because this is the second or the third account of a similar story that takes place. So I'd encourage you, turn to chapter 10, in Mark, we'll be looking beginning in verse 32, and we'll walk through several verses together. In chapter 10, this is the final, the third time that Jesus tells them of his coming death, and actually it tells the most details of any of the three chapters, because this is right before it takes place. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 32, it says, and they, meaning the disciples and Jesus, were on the road. Where were they going? They were going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. They knew something was about to happen, but they didn't know what. And taking the twelve, that's his disciples again, or, uh, yes, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And here's what Jesus says. I want you to see eight different things that Jesus says is about to happen. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Here's the first one. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Here's the second one. They will condemn him to death. Here's the third one. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles or the Romans. Here's the fourth one. They'll mock him. 
Here's the fifth one. They'll spit on him. Here's the sixth one. They'll flog him. Here's the seventh. They'll kill him. And then here's the last one. And after three days, he will rise. Now, for those of us who are on this side of the cross, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we read through that and we go, yep, that's exactly what took place. But the disciples are clueless when Jesus is telling them this. If you were here last week, we, we saw that their immediate reaction was, okay, that's great, and now who's the greatest of all the disciples? They missed the point. And, and this time, instead of the disciples debating who is the greatest, we see a couple of his followers say something really, really dumb. Look at verse 35. Beginning in verse 35, we'll go through 37. It says, And James and John, that's two of his disciples, they happen to be the sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus, and here's what they said to him. Right on the heels of him describing how he was going to be crucified and raised again, they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's like a loaded statement. Parents, if your kids come to you and say, Mom, will you let me do something? Are you just going to give a carte blanche yes to that? No, you want to hear what they are asking for, right? But here's James and John. They, they want Jesus to say yes to whatever they ask of him. And essentially, they ask him for the moon, if you will. It says, and he said to them in verse 38, sorry, 36, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So, here's Jesus telling them that he's about to march to Jerusalem. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be spit upon, mocked, flogged, killed, and raised on the third day. And all James and John can think about is, can we please sit beside you on your right and your left when you come into your glory? Here's what's going on. The disciples knew that Jesus was king. And in their mind, to be king would mean that he's going to set up an earthly throne in Jerusalem and kind of show who's in charge. And if he's going to set up a kingdom there in Jerusalem when they get there, then surely James and John can be his right hand and his left hand men. That they would sit at his place of honor. So whenever they describe, Jesus, would you do this when you come into your glory, they're not thinking of the glory that's about to come because of his death, burial, and resurrection. They're thinking the glory because they think he's king, which he is, but that he is an earthly king. And essentially they're saying, can you make us the most important people in your kingdom? Think about the audacity for them to ask that of Jesus, much less at this particular time, as Jesus is describing all that's about to take place to him. And then, if you jump forward a few verses, look down at verse 41, and you're going to see the reaction of the other disciples. It says in 41, And when the ten, talking about the other ten disciples, heard it, that they had asked Jesus for him to sit, them to sit at his right and left hand, they began to be indignant at James and John. I know what some of you may be thinking, that's right. Those ten guys know that that's a silly question and they're getting on to James and John. No, their indignancy is not about the fact that John, James and John would ask that of Jesus. They're mad because James and John asked it before they had a chance to. They're like, we wanted to sit at his right hand. We wanted to sit at his left hand. Why are you trying to play teacher's favorite when we should be the ones sitting there? So all 12 of them 
have a misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple or an incomplete understanding of what it means to be a disciple, an incomplete understanding of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not about earthly power. Although God is sovereign over all, his kingdom is beyond the scope of our world and beyond our scope of imagination. Look now with me at verses 38 through 40. This is right after James and John said, hey, can we be sitting at your right hand, your left hand? Here's Jesus' response. How would he engage them? Jesus said to them, James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, but... To sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Let's talk for just a second about what Jesus is getting at when he refers to this cup and when he refers to this baptism and, and whether they can participate in the cup or the baptism. What Jesus is saying in this statement to James and John and the other disciples as they're listening as well is this, that to be his follower, we have to follow the path of the cross. Jesus says, I'm setting up my kingdom, and for me to set up my kingdom is to, uh, to set up all glory for my kingdom. Can we please, am I, am I lost? Okay. Sorry about that. All right. So, um, okay. So Jesus is pointing to the disciples to the way of the cross. He's saying, I'm on my way to the cross right now. And this is a part of the picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And if the, if the king of this kingdom faces the way of the cross, doesn't it make sense that the followers of Jesus will also face the way of suffering that comes with the way of the cross. Let's look at this phrase here about the cup. He says in verse 39, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The word cup here is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for suffering. In fact, if you'll go back to the Old Testament, the word cup is oftentimes used in reference to the wrath of God. The judgment of God is poured out in a cup. And when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying that this cup would pass from him because he knows he's about to face all kinds of suffering and death and experience the judgment of God's wrath, the wrath of God's judgment, I'm sorry, on his life as he is on the cross. He says that the drink that, uh, to drink that cup that I drink means to face the same fate or destiny. Does that mean that you and I, as followers of Jesus, will end up on a cross and be crucified? Well, Technically, I guess we could, but most likely we won't. But what Jesus is saying is this. Just as I drink this cup of suffering, you as a follower of mine will face suffering. Here in the United States, suffering may look one way. In other nations, suffering may look a different way. But the reality is all of us as followers of Jesus 
will face some shape, form, or fashion of suffering. So Jesus is painting a picture of what they're going to experience. And then this idea of baptism, it's a metaphor for being plunged into some sort of calamity or disaster or situation or hardship. Jesus would soon be flooded or immersed in his destiny, which was to be crucified on the cross. So Jesus says this, Hey guys, I can't promise you which seat you'll be in when I go to my glory in, in heaven, but I can promise you this. If you're a follower of mine, you will face hardship, suffering, and maybe even death. See, James, what happened to James? Did you know that James, according to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, was the first recorded apostle that was martyred and killed by King Herod? What happened to John? John ended up on a remote island called Patmos as he was there in, in um, uh, he was exiled there, and that this was a destination for criminals and political prisoners. That's where John ended up. So what we see in this is that discipleship is not all fun and games. That discipleship is what we should be after, following Jesus, trusting him, obeying him, but at times it brings immense suffering now let's look down at verses 42 through 45 jesus called them to him and he said this to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Perhaps as I read those verses, you flash back to last week in chapter 9, verse 35, which says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus said it last week in chapter 9. Jesus said it again this week in chapter 10. I spent an entire sermon last week saying that we are to be last and that we're to serve others. And I spent a whole week preaching that last week, and now I'm bringing it up again this week. Why the repetition from Jesus? Why the repetition from me? The reality is this, that to be a disciple of Jesus is countercultural. It's not the norm. It's not the way that people want to go. Who wants to sign up and say, hey, I want to suffer? Who says I want to, to go last? Who says I want to serve everyone around me? That's not the cultural norm. And for that to sink in our thick heads, he has to repeat it over and over and over again. So I want us to look at a few practical things that we can walk away from this passage. Because again, I think this passage, especially as we look at verses 42, sorry, uh, verses, uh, yeah, 42 through 45 is pretty self-explanatory. Jesus says, you know that those who are, cons oh, l l sorry, let me go to 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. I'm not saying it's easy to live out, but it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that to be a disciple, we must serve other people. We must make ourselves last. But what are some practical implications and how are we to live that out? I've got three quick points on your sermon notes, and here's the first one. A disciple should never pursue his or her own selfish gain. You see, James and John violated that statement. 
A disciple should not ever seek his or her own personal gain. That doesn't mean we won't enjoy life. It doesn't mean God won't give us blessings. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue good things. But if all we are after is our own selfish desires, then we are not being the kind of disciple that Jesus is calling us to be. Yet John and James, they come with the most selfish thing they could ask of Jesus, put us in charge because we deserve it. They wanted to sit at his right hand, at his left hand. They wanted God's kingdom to kind of be in their own hands to run and operate with all kinds of authority. Perhaps you wouldn't dream of being like James and John. Like, I would never go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you make me second in charge? Would you make me third in charge? But the reality is all of us, if we're not careful, are tempted to think that our relationship with God is all about me. This week, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of, of a book. Perhaps you've read it, perhaps you're familiar with it. Uh, Rick Warren wrote a book back in the day, 20 years ago, called The Purpose Driven Life. And the very beginning of that book starts with this sentence. It's not about you. L let me read the rest of it. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by purpose and for his purpose. All too often, we make Christianity all about me, all about my job, all about my family, all about my happiness, all about my health, all about my church, all about my, 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 my. Don't get me wrong, I believe that God wants us to honor him in our lives, in our career, in our jobs, in our, in our finances, in, in our dreams, in our ambitions. But those should never be about what we want. It's about bringing him glory and about bringing him honor. I think Paul shares some similar things with us. Perhaps you're familiar with Philippians chapter 2. I, I wanted to read to you the very beginning, if I can get there. Uh, usually I mark these ahead of time. There it is. Philippians chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 through 5. Paul describes Jesus and says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. We just covered that, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and describes how Jesus showed humility, but the reality is this, that Jesus modeled for us that it's not about us. Why do we have a tendency to make following Jesus about our own selfish gain? I have a few questions I want you to filter through. Perhaps you, you see this, a disciple, should never, um, a disciple should never pursue his or her own selfish gain. Well, how do I know if I'm doing that? I, I would love for you maybe to jot down these questions or at least reflect on them. I think they're on the screen right now. Here are Four questions that you and I can ask of ourselves that will help us see if we are just after our own selfish gain. Am I focused on me or am I focused on Jesus? 
am I making my plans or am I following God's plans for my life? Am I building up my own little kingdom or am I helping build up God's kingdom? You see, James and John were all about building up their own kingdom. Jesus, put us at your right hand, put us at your left hand. We want to build up our kingdom when no, the reality is we shouldn't be building up our kingdom. We should be building up God's kingdom. And then the last one, and I'll ask them to leave it on the screen for just a moment longer. The last one says this, am I seeking my glory or am I extending his glory? I would ask you to take a fair assessment of your own life. I, I would hope that there's not too many of us in this room that are just blatantly doing the my section of those questions. But I would anticipate that many of us, if we made an honest assessment of our lives, we're all too often on the left side of that sentence instead of the right side of that sentence. So as a disciple of Jesus, to put it more positively as you still look at those questions, our lives should be focused on Jesus. Our lives should be about following God's plans for our life. Our lives should be about helping to build up God's kingdom as the Holy Spirit does his work in our life. Our lives should be about extending his glory. So a disciple should never have as his or her ambition or goal or desire or plan a selfish ambition. Selfish ambition means I'm doing this to the exclusion of others. It's not selfish to desire that you and your family would have good health. It's not selfish to pray that your marriage would be restored. Those those things aren't selfish prayers or selfish ambitions, but if we're not careful, we can make life all about us and what we want and what we desire, and therefore it does become selfish. So I'd encourage you, use those questions to assess where you're at. Look at the second point I have on the sermon outline. It says this, that the life of a disciple is to be defined by service. A disciple's life is to be defined by service. So instead of being selfish, we should be serving others. 43 and 45, Jesus says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The only way to be great. This is a repeat of chapter 9. The only way to be great is for us to be a servant. The only way for us to be great is for us to be a slave of all of all to serve others and then in verse 44 we see that jesus if you look at that verse it says that jesus goes on to say that he came he himself came not to be served but to serve so if that's the case if jesus says that to be great we should be servant to be great we should be slave if jesus says that that he came not to be served himself but instead that he would serve others then surely as his followers, we should follow his example. But again, reflecting on reality, too often here in the United States of America, I believe that we treat our church involvement as a consumer. All too often here in the United States of America, I think that we treat our discipleship as a consumer, when in reality it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about what I get, it's about serving him and serving others. We expect others to serve us instead of seeking to serve others. So I've got a list of questions for you to filter through. Again, there are four questions here. How do I know if I am a disciple whose life is defined by service? Well, here are four questions. I would ask you to maybe jot these down or reflect on the one that maybe stands out to you the most. And here are the four questions. Do I 
think the church, and when I say the church, it could be Living Hope or another church, because I realize in this building or online, we have a lot of people that are a part of Living Hope, but we also may have a lot of people that are a part of First Baptist Church down the street or, or, or uh, First Methodist Church in another city. I don't know what, where your church home is, but as you think about the church, wherever your church home is, do I think that the church exists to serve me? Or am I here to serve in and with the church? I hope that you'll hear on the left-hand side of each of these questions the consumeristic nature that we have. And I hope that you'll hear on the right-hand side the desire to flip us towards serving. The second question says, do I attend church programs and activities without serving in any of them? Now, I've put in any of them, because I'm not saying every program or activity we do at church, you should serve in every single one of them. But I'm just saying if you go to 100% of church activities and events and things and never serve at any of them, I believe that you've got things out of order. The third one says this, do I just take from the church or do I give back to the church? I'm not saying do you come in and steal things from us. I'm not saying do you just give back a, a, a check to the church. Let me explain what I mean by give and take in this uh, question. Do I come to church and just see what products the church gives to me? Like, as long as the preaching's good, I'll be there. As long as the singing's good, I'll be there. As long as they do all of the programs and activities that I think they should do, then I'll be there. If, if we have the right color carpet, then I'll be there. The, the list could go on and on and on. But do I come so that I can get from the church? Should the church serve us? Yes. Should the church be a blessing to me and my family? Yes. Should we receive God's blessings in and through the church? Yes. But if that's all I'm doing and I'm never looking for an opportunity to give back to the church by serving or by giving my time or giving my finances or giving my creativity or serving on a ministry team am i not doing those things then if that's the case then i'm only taking instead of giving and then i'm going to ask the fourth one and i would ask again for it to stay on the screen for a moment longer the last one is do i receive ministry from the church or do i partner in ministry through and with the church kind of talked about this already let me explain the through and with for just a moment sometimes we have serving opportunities or programs or activities that are happening in the life of the church and it's kind of y'all come and let's do this together and, and and that kind of thing other times it's the ability of the church to kind of resource us and encourage us and then push us out and prompt us to go out and do that ministry even if it's not specifically a church-wide event per se but both of those ministry opportunities are important, that we provide opportunities for us to serve in and with and through the local church. So I'd ask you, maybe I saw some of you take a picture of those questions, filter through those questions, and try to identify, am I more prone to want to be served by my church? Or do I have a desire to serve in and through and with my church? Because I think, that if we serve in and with and through our church, that while we do that, we will be served by the church and receive the blessings. However, I think if our only focus is to say, what can the church do for me, and we never serve in and with and through the church, then we're out of balance, okay? So, 
What does it look like here at Living Hope? Not all of you are members of Living Hope. Not all of you live here in College Station. But are you serving within the life of your church somewhere? Here in our church, we ask all of our members to serve in at least one ministry area. And some may serve in two or three. But I would encourage you to find, if you're not serving somewhere, find the one place you can jump in this week to plug into to be a part of serving within the life of our congregation. I know for some of us, for COVID reasons or, or health reasons or stations of life or, or busyness of life or just got out of the routine and habit, we maybe are not serving somewhere. But if you're a member of our church, would you prayerfully consider where is God calling you to serve so that you can be faithful to be a part of the ministry that's happening in our congregation? So I've got a list of some of the ministries that are available here at our church that are going to be on the screen now. This is not exhaustive, although it's almost entirely, I see uh, we may have it on two lists, so he, they're not going to be on the screen all at the same time, but I'm going to read through them, okay? Here's the first one. Perhaps some of you are good at serving on buildings and properties. You kind of know how to fix stuff. You know how to change light bulbs. You know how to change batteries like I don't. You, you know how to change filters in the air conditioner system. You, you can problem solve. You can help out on the building and properties. <clears throat> some of you may be children's. Did you know that we have like 50 or 60 kids probably right now that are upstairs and back here that are school-age kids that are enjoying time together, learning about Jesus, but we need more and more of our members to step up to serve in those children's areas so that they can experience the love of Jesus through your work and ministry. We've got an area called College of Young Adults, sometimes called SIA, and, and it's designed, as it describes, to serve that specific generation in our congregation would you be willing to to come alongside of them and and serve and be a chaperone or to 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 um to to serve in some capacity in, in that area discipleship we we obviously want people to grow in their faith uh, with jesus and understand what it looks like to be a disciple here in the context of our local congregation and discipleship would be a great place to do that finance where you can help plan the budget and figure out how we're doing financially and make plans and decisions as it relates to spending and things like that as the church empowers you to do so. What about hospitality? This is an incredibly important area. We've got like a million ways you can serve in hospitality. You could help check kids in to uh, children's programs. You could help greet people at the door. You could help make coffee and serve it. You could open the doors for people. You could help people find their seats. The list goes on and on. You could smile and say howdy. There's all kinds of ways to be a part of hospitality. Missions. Missions. Don't think that this is just the team that goes on mission trips. Don't just think this is the team that plans mission trips and that's all they do. Rather, the idea is that we would be in ministry and doing missions both locally and abroad. That sometimes we would go and sometimes we would fund. Sometimes we would do both. That we would have strategy to get involved in the life of our community as well as around the world. Would you be willing to serve in missions? What about personnel? I hear we've got a great staff here, at least a decent pastor. No, really, we've got a great staff here. And you could be a part of a team that encourages us, supports us, loves us, and, and helps out in that way. Preschool. Let me count. Uh, I see a, somebody give me an amen over there. Let me count the ways you could serve in preschool. We've got spots for about 15 kids on a Sunday morning. We would love to open it up bigger. But the reality is we need some of you that love Jesus, love this church, love kids, and can pass a background check and can say why you're doing it with all confidence is because you love Jesus and want to serve the vision of this church. We could use you in the area of preschool. What about SALT? You're like, I like pepper better. SALT stands for, uh, stands for SALT. Stands for Senior Adults Living Triumphantly. The idea is that we want to serve 
the senior adults in our congregation as well as in our community. What about technology? Can you kind of fix stuff? Yeah, I think you kind of know what technology is. What about worship? You're like, I don't sing. I don't play an instrument. Uh, maybe you can run a camera. Maybe you can do some of the video stuff. Maybe you can do all kinds of things to be a part of worship and youth. That's our middle school and high school. I've talked a really long time about all this. What do you do? Here's the deal. If you're a member of our church and you're not serving in any of these areas, or maybe you need to switch the area you're serving, you need to get in another one. Here's what you need, need to do today. Here's how you can do it. You can go to our website, lhbc.net slash serving, and there's a list of those teams. Click on a link, hit that you want to connect and be a part of that team, and or when we dismiss, there should be somebody standing at a registration table right out here, and they can help you kind of navigate where you can sign up to be a part of one of these teams. Let me finish by sharing this. Jesus modeled all of this for us. This is the final point on your notes. Jesus modeled all of this by giving his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45 is the most important verse for us to understand the book of Mark. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many carries with it the concept of what we refer to as substitutionary atonement. It's kind of a big phrase. What does substitutionary atonement mean? It means substitute. It means atonement. What's atonement? Atonement means to be made right with God, to be reconciled with God. Back in the day, I heard somebody say atonement means you're at one with God. It's kind of a way to remember what atonement means. But the reality is that God wants us to be reconciled to him. And the only way that we can be reconciled to him is through what Jesus has done on our behalf. See, here's the deal. To be made at one with God means that we're not at one with God. What, what, why are we not at one with God? The Bible says that all of us are sinners. All of us want to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. All of us want to be large and in charge. All of us want to call the shots. All of us want to do life my way. All of us want to be selfish. All of us want to say yes to us and no to God. The Bible says that 100% of us will sin and have sinned against God. And the Bible says that because of our sin, we are eternally separated forever from a holy, perfect God. And because of that, we need to be reconciled back to God. So how are we reconciled back to God? How are we atoned with God? How are we, how's our sin atoned for? The way it's atoned for is by Jesus' substitution on our behalf. You see, the Bible says that all of us deserve death. But Jesus is our substitute because he died in our place. Jesus said back in an earlier verse that he was going to Jerusalem, that he would be arrested, that he'd be flogged, he'd be scourged, he'd be, uh, uh, be mocked, he'd be spit upon, he'd be killed, and he'd be raised on the third day. The reason for all that is because he needed to die in our place. That if we'll place our faith and our trust in him, believing that we are sinners needing God's redemption through the price that Jesus paid on our behalf, then we can receive forgiveness of our sins and be made one with him once again and so jesus says in this text that he was giving his life as a ransom for many do you know what the word ransom means i think most of us probably do but the word ransom carries with it to be uh, providing the means for release or deliverance from something 
that is paid to release slaves or captives. And the reality is that you and I are slaves to our sin and we cannot break free of sin without Christ paying a ransom on our behalf. You're like, okay, hold up. Who's the ransom paid to? Oh, it must be paid to Satan. Absolutely not. Satan cannot receive a ransom on our behalf because Satan, that would put him in a position to make demands of God, and he can never make demands of God. Rather, God defined what was needed, and God said that death must come in order for forgiveness to take place. And so, so God the Father sent his son Jesus, and he paid that ransom on our behalf through the death of his son that our sins might be forgiven. Then it says that he gave his life for the ransom of many. What does it mean, many? The word many carries with it an indefinite number, yet a large number. And the reality is that the effects of Jesus' sacrifice is extended to everyone who will accept it, but not everyone chooses to accept his, his price. And yet, if you this morning would trust in what Jesus has done on your behalf, you could experience the forgiveness of sin today. So my question for you this morning is this. Since Jesus died and gave his life as a ransom for many, are you included in that many? Have you acknowledged to the Father that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and that that forgiveness comes only through Jesus? And if you haven't, would today be the day that you accept that free gift and say yes to him? I want to take it a step further and say maybe you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. I was talking in the hallway just a moment ago about baptism with someone. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a step of obedience after salvation comes. And so maybe some of you in this room, you've accepted Jesus' free gift on your behalf, and you're a follower of Jesus, but for whatever reason, you've not followed up with baptism yet. Here's good news. Next Sunday morning, there's going to be a baptistry right down here, and we're going to have a baptism. And so if you or someone you know that is interested in baptism, contact us at the church office. We're closed Monday. Contact us Tuesday or Wednesday at the very latest, and we'll talk about trying to schedule your baptism for next Sunday. But here's the deal. This message that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many is not just a message that we receive, but it's also a message that we're to go out and share with others. When's the last time? And maybe you didn't use the terminology of ransom, maybe you didn't use the word of substitutionary atonement, but when's the last time you sat down with someone and you told them how they can be forgiven of their sins and be made right with God and given them an opportunity to hear the gospel? We are called by God to go from this place, not to just receive the blessing of salvation, but also to attempt to extend it to others as we share with them what it means to come to faith in Jesus. So this morning, as you reflect on your life, several angles to look at it from. First and most importantly, have you accepted the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? And if not, would you come right up here in just a second and tell me that you want to receive Christ as your Savior? If you have received him as your Savior, have you followed up with baptism? If not, next Sunday we're having a baptism. Let us know. You can pull out your connection card that's right in front of you, and you can jot it down on that as well. Let us know so we can can get you lined up for baptism. What about if you are a follower of Jesus and you have been baptized, are you living a life that's selfish, or are you living a life that's, that's serving God and his church and his world? And lastly, 
How are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel message with those around you? Lots of ways for us to respond, to say yes to following Jesus this morning. And I would encourage you that you would say yes to him this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And after the prayer is over with, we'll stand. We'll sing one song together or maybe a couple. I'm not sure how many. And I'll be down here, down front. If you have a decision you need to make and you'd like to share it with me, I'd love to be a part of that. Or you can jot it on your connection card and drop that in the offering boxes a little bit later. Or you can come and pray here at your seat. But say yes to God this morning, wherever he's calling you. Let me leave some prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus as a ransom for many. God, I thank you that my name is written in your book of life because not of what I have done, but because of my trust in Jesus for salvation. God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that people would say yes to you, whether yes to you for the first time, or whether it's yes to baptism, or whether it's yes to serving others, or whether it's yes to serving in our congregation, or whether it's yes to tell others about the gospel of Jesus in our world. God, that you would empower us and enable us to say yes to you this morning and that you'd give us the feet then to carry out the things that you're calling us to do. Father, we thank you for how you're going to work in our midst right now in this moment as we say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? And if there's a decision you need to make and you'd like to come and share it with me or pray here, feel free to do so as we sing, as we continue to worship together as a church body.